One of my favorite memories of Christmas growing up was the time when my dad would take the family Bible and would read the Christmas story from Luke's gospel. Special because it was the only time that I can remember my dad reading the Bible. Dad didn't come to know Christ until I was 18 years old and uh, went home to heaven in the same uh, living room where he trusted Christ as Savior and he died in the year 2000. But that has been a tradition in our family to read Luke's version of the Christmas story every Christmas since then. And as you think about that story, it's an amazing story that sometimes we lose because of the um, just the cuteness of the story, and we've made it something different than it is. Now, I love children's pageants, and I love children's dramatization, but let's face it, sometimes that does take away from the impact of what happened. I mean, seeing shepherds in bathrobes and seeing, you know, angels with cardboard wings and tilted halos and, and seeing, you know, the, um, uh, a very young, very, very young Mary and Joseph up on the stage with a little manger with some straw and a plastic baby sometimes just takes away a little bit of the reality of what happened, doesn't it? And it causes us to lose sight that Christ's coming was a kingdom invasion wrapped in a little baby. Jesus Christ came to invade enemy territory. He came to the world he created and yet that had rejected him. He came to people that were made in his image and yet had sinned against him. He came to a nation that were to be his people and yet they had really rebelled against him. He descended into humanity under the dominion of Satan's kingdom where self was on the throne. Jesus Christ came to bring a holy war. He came to rescue those who were living under the tyranny of self-centered living and to break that bondage. Understand this. Jesus came to redeem, but he also came to rule. This baby, this this coming of Christ as a kingdom, invasion wrapped in a little baby. What an incredible story. This morning, I want you to understand this, that Christ's kingdom authority has come to overthrow the kingdom of self inside you. Christ's kingdom authority has come to overthrow the kingdom of self inside of you. If you take your Bibles and turn to Luke, or you can look on the screen, there are Bibles that are uh, handy there for you, and there's a kind of a chart to help guide you through this morning. In Luke chapter 2, we, we see this story, and in those days there was a decree that went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each one to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And when they were there, the time gave for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place in the inn." Uh, This story really shows the contrast between the authority of Caesar and the authority of this baby that was born. 
Caesar Augustus was the emperor of the Roman Empire. And you can look at this map and see how vast and the size of the, 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 uh, the emperor, that, that, um, the territory that he served. And as you think about that, realize what this happened. Caesar had said, everyone has to go back to the town of their ancestry and to be registered for a fresh round of empire taxes. You can almost hear the groan of the conquered peoples around the Roman Empire are thinking, another tax from Caesar. And the word came out of an unplanned trip to pay more to Rome. But you need to understand, Caesar was not only seen as uh, the king and the emperor, but Caesar was literally seen as a god. When Julius Caesar was um, murdered, it became... It became something that people believed that he was actually now among the gods. And there was a meteor that went, went by, a comet that went by at the time, and so they were convinced that Caesar was God. Interesting that um, he had, uh, on a Roman coin uh, of Caesar, it says, deified Julius. In other words, Caesar as king. There's an arch in the city of Ephesus. And these words are on that arch. You can see a picture of it here. I don't expect you'll be able to read Latin, but this is what it says. Emperor divine Caesar, son of the god Augustus, greatest high priest. So Caesar was seen to be God. And this next slide shows an, an engraving, both in Greek and in Latin, that describes the gospel of Caesar. It actually was called that, using the same word that describes the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and it talks about all that he had done, the, the good news of the Pax Romana, the Roman peace, and the great prosperity that he had brought, and all of his victory and his conquerings. Matter of fact, the, another um, inscription about Caesar says, the birth date of our God has signaled the beginning of the good news for the world. So the gospel of Caesar. So the story begins talking about Caesar and, and his taxation and his power and his authority. And we're confronted then with a story of the birth of the Messiah. An invasion from heaven. The birth of Christ is a kingdom invasion wrapped in a little baby. Uh, look at what we're told. The, the birth of Christ, actually, God and his sovereignty used Caesar's edict to get Jesus born in the place that Micah said he was going to be born. So God, even in that, trumped the authority of Caesar. God had said, the Messiah is to be born in Bethlehem, Micah 5.2. Joseph and Mary were from Nazareth. How do we get them from Nazareth to Bethlehem? Well, we just have Caesar do an edict. The sovereignty of God is seen in this event. The shepherds, as we read here, are shocked. In the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them. By the way, anytime an angel shows up, People are just think they're going to die. It's just that kind of a shock to the system to be in the presence of an angel. Imagine what it's like to be in the presence of God. And, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. They were terrified. This angel was a herald of the king 
appearing to announce his coming. And he said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news. I bring you the gospel, not the gospel of Caesar, the gospel of Jesus Christ, of great joy that will be to all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, Bethlehem, in keeping with a covenant that God had made with David, a Savior, the one who will rescue and deliver you, Christ the Lord, and this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger, strange place for the birth of a king. Not in a palace, not in the temple, but in a manger, but an appropriate place for the one who'd become the Lamb of God and our shepherd, born in a manger. And suddenly the sky was filled with a whole myriad of angels praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace, goodwill towards men. God is declaring that it is not Caesar, it is Jesus Christ that has ultimate authority. He is the one that has come to bring ultimate peace and goodwill to mankind. He is the one who has the authority. My friends, Luke wrote this gospel to a Roman official called Theophilus. And it's very, very clear what he's doing here as he tells and retells the story that Christ is the rightful king, not Caesar, and certainly in your life and my life, not self. So we read of Caesar and say, what a, what a prideful, arrogant thing to call yourself God. My friend, today, sitting on the throne of your heart is either self or Christ. Who is it? Who is it? I want us to... Um, Flashback as we think about how the kingdom of Christ overthrows the kingdom of self. Because wherever self rules, friends, there is no peace. When self rules in your heart, there is no peace. We just heard read earlier Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Wherever Christ rules, friends, there's peace. When self rules, there is no peace in your life. So I want us to take a little bit of a flashback to some scenes in the Old Testament that will help give some foundation for us understanding what it really means for the kingdom authority of Christ to overthrow the kingdom of self. We go back to the book of Genesis where it all begins, and in the the Garden of Eden, in the third chapter, we see the brokenness of self, the brokenness of self. The battle began between the kingdom of self and the kingdom of Christ right there. Satan shows up who had already led a rebellion against the rule of God and setting himself up as God and and self being dominating that is now trying to get some fresh recruits. So he shows up in the garden and he deceives and he tricks Adam and Eve. He, He begins to question the word of God. Has God really said? And he focuses on the one limitation that God had set, this one tree, rather than focusing on the generosity and the goodness of God. He begins to question what God has said. When, when Eve tells what God had told them, he says, you will not surely die. In other words, you can put self in as your authority and sin against God and there will be no consequences. My friends, that's a lie. It was then and it is today. It is today. Whenever you put self in the place of God, that is the core and issue of sin. And it always leads to brokenness in our life. Adam and Eve did that. 
And then he said, God knows that the day that you eat thereof, you will be as God. The message is this, God's trying to cheat you. God really doesn't have your best interest in mind. So raise your fist up against God and set up the kingdom of self inside you. And that's exactly what they did. And the brokenness of sin resulted. Every war, every act of violence, every heartbreak, every disease, every sin, every angry word, every conflict, all goes back to this, setting self up in the place of God. The good news is this. Before we get out of the garden in Genesis chapter 3, God promises a coming redeemer who would crush the serpent's head. One whose foot would be bruised, one who would be born of a woman, not of a man, but of a woman. And, and God offered a sacrifice. Interesting to me that before we get out of the garden, God himself offers the first sacrifice to himself. With a bloody sacrifice, he took animal skins and he robed them. Isaiah, in Isaiah 53, speaks about how God wants to take broken sinners and he wants to become the sacrifice for them and their shepherd. Isaiah, the prophet, said this about Christ. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. Uh, we call that doing our own thing, claiming our own rights, choosing our own paths. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Friend, listen to this. The death of Jesus on the cross was because of our kingdom of self inside and the sin that it has caused. That's what Isaiah 53, 6 is saying. We've all, like sheep, gone astray. We've all done our own thing. We've all set up the kingdom of self. But the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. And now he becomes the shepherd. You see, you have the choice of brokenness because of the kingdom of self or the wonderful joy of forgiveness and Christ shepherding by living under his rule. And the coming of Christ was to produce that change, that transformation in our life. Think about this. Think about how the kingdom of self brings cycles of defeat. In the book of Judges, we read about the, the, some repeated cycles of defeat that happened in the um, nation of Israel. And over and over again, and the key verse of the book of Judges is this. It's in the very last verse of the book, Judges 21, 45. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That's the kingdom of self versus the kingdom of God. That, that phrase, in those days, there was no king in Israel, is repeated four times in the book of Judges, and it's the major theme. And, and the predictable cycles that happen are Israel committing uh, sin against God, rebelling against God, experiencing, because of their idolatry and sin, captivity and oppression. And that captivity and oppression leading to them crying out to God and God raising up a judge to deliver them. And after God delivers them, there's a period of peace and it happens again and again and again and again and again. The kingdom of self versus the kingdom of God. Friends, in your life and in mine, we are spiritually defeated whenever we put self on the throne. The fastest way for you to be defeated in temptation 
in trials and difficulties in your life is to put self in the place of God. That is an instant, automatic, you're going to go into a cycle of defeat. You contrast that with the book of Joshua, the book before that. Joshua is a book of great victory. Matter of fact, the conquest of the land happens after wandering in the wilderness for 40 years because of the kingdom of self, trusting man instead of God. They come into the land, and Joshua, after crossing the Jordan River through the miracle of God, is standing there checking out Jericho. How are we going to take the city? And as he's standing there, all of a sudden, the angel of the Lord, who I believe is a pre-incarnate manifestation of Jesus, shows up with a sword drawn in his hand. Now, Joshua is a military man, and he confronts that, that figure who he doesn't know who it is, and he said, are you for us or for our adversaries? I like what Tony Evans says about this. Jesus' response, I didn't come to take sides, I came to take over. And so Jesus shows up here, and with a sword drawn in his hand, And Joshua falls on his face before him. I mean, he is in the ground. He says, what does my Lord say to his servant? And he worshiped him. And the Lord says, Joshua, take off your shoes. The place you're standing is holy. See, that's like Moses' burning bush experience. That's what it was for Joshua. And Joshua had a posture of submission to the authority of God. And he's down on his face in humility and submission before him. He is not shaking his fist at God. He is totally surrendered and submitted to God. And because of that, Joshua experiences repeated victory. Friend, do you get that in your life? Spiritual defeat comes from setting up self as the authority in your life. Spiritual victory comes by setting up Christ as the authority in your life. This is no small thing in our lives. Every time I am defeated spiritually, it's usually because I put self in the place of Christ in my life. On the throne of my heart, somebody is reigning today. Is it Christ? Is it self? Christ, kingdom, authority came to overthrow the kingdom of self in you. Flash a little bit forward to this David's second psalm. And and this is just an incredible passage. Matter of fact, a few months ago when Pastor Joel was preaching on, on the book of Acts in the fourth chapter, the church is experiencing persecution. And they gather together to have a prayer meeting. And guess what? In that prayer meeting, they pray Psalm 2. That's what they do. They pray this psalm. And when you look at this psalm, it's pretty, pretty incredible what happens because there's a laughable rebellion. It begins with a question, why did the nations rage in anger and the people plot a vain thing, an empty, futile effort? And, and the psalmist describes a council of war by the kings and rulers lined up against the kingdom of Christ. They're plotting rebellion against his authority over them. They're seeing the, the wise and gracious and loving authority of Christ as something that is oppressive because of the kingdom of self. And so what happens is God, if if you look carefully, God actually laughs. This is the only time in the entire Bible where you find God laughing. I, I do believe God has a sense of humor because after all, he created me and you. Psalm 2, though, is the only recorded place in the Bible where God laughs. 
Look at verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. He holds them in derision. For, for God, it is side-splitting funny to think that puny man can rebel against his authority. It is a cosmic comedy. God is saying, who in the world does man think he is? All of these kings, all of these emperors together, shaking their fist at God. God says, this is crazy funny. Matter of fact, he has them in derision, which means God actually mocks and scorns them. And maybe you don't think of God that way, but I want to tell you, God doesn't like people rebelling against his authority because he created us, and he's the true and living God, and he's our rightful authority. God doesn't take this lightly. I want you to, to notice He's scorning the foolishness of the most powerful kings on earth, rebelling against his authority. So look at the, look at the response, the sovereign authority of God. God says, my sovereign authority will be accomplished. He speaks to them in his wrath. He terrifies them with his fury. He said, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. He's saying, I will establish Christ as king in Jerusalem. Jesus then speaks to the Son of God, and he says, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And, and Jesus offers to him, God offers to him all the nations as his inheritance, the ends of the earth as his possession, and he says, you will break them with a rod of iron and dash them to pieces with a potter's vessel. Think of a clay pot and an iron rod. And you take the iron rod and you break the clay pot. There is no way that it can withstand and so this is actually used in the book of Revelation to speak of Jesus coming back and setting up his kingdom. This verse is quoted. He will break the nations like a, like a potter's vessel with an iron rod. That's what it's saying. He says, what should our response be? He says, now therefore, kings, be wise, be warned. Serve the Lord with fear, with reverence and worship. Rejoice with trembling. What a mixture. And then he said, kiss the sun in submission, and in loyalty to him. Psalm 2 kind of gives us a backdrop of what's happening in Luke 2. The, the Son of God is showing up as king. The one that's spoken of in Psalm 2 is being born in the manger. He is the one who has ultimate authority and should have authority over self. Now, friend, just think about this. If God in Psalm 2 is saying, when all of these kings and all of these rulers set themselves up against the rule of Christ. And God laughs and God mocks and says, they have no power to rebel against me. Then who in the world do I think I am to in pride and in arrogance set myself up over the rule of Christ? Who in the world do I think I am? Who in the world do you think you are? Do you learn the lesson of this? To rebel against the rule of Jesus Christ and his plan for human history is folly. To rebel against the rule of Jesus Christ in your life is just as foolish. Just as foolish. One more Old Testament flashback because... This is looking forward to the thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ, but it also gives me insight into his rule in my life because Christ will come and set up his kingdom, but Christ wants to be your king today and my king. One more passage, one more look in the Old Testament. 
the exalting of man, Daniel, in the book of Daniel, um, we, he comes on the scene and he is taken captive to the city, to the, to the um, city of Babylon. And we don't know much about his background except his name. We know he's Jewish, he was a captive, and his name, Daniel, means God is my judge. His parents named him so that he would always remember who his ultimate authority was. Every time they called Daniel, it was a reminder, Daniel, God's your judge. Your ultimate authority is God. So he shows up there, and he takes a stand for God, and he's, he's put among those that are the advisors to the king. And in the second chapter of the book of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar has a bad dream, maybe too much pizza and ice cream the night before, I don't know. But he has this very, very bad dream, and he wakes up in the morning, and he gathers together all of his astrologers and wise men and magicians and counselors and says, I want you to tell me what the dream is, and I want you to tell me what it means. And they say, tell us the dream, and we'll tell you the interpretation. He says, no, no, no. You tell me the dream and the interpretation, I'm going to kill all of you. And he had the authority to do that. Daniel and his friends gather and have a prayer meeting, and God gives to him the dream and its interpretation. He goes into Nebuchadnezzar, and he tells him this. You can look at the screen, and you can see this text of Scripture. God revealed to him that the vision, the dream that he had, was of a multi-metaled image. Now, catch this. Just want you to be sure to see this. The gold, as later he interprets it, is Nebuchadnezzar and the authority that he had in Babylon. The silver, the, the chest of this image, is the Medes and the Persians. The, the thighs are bronze, and it represents the rule of Greece and Alexander the Great. And the legs are made out of iron and pictures the coming Roman Empire. And then the, the, the feet of clay and iron together picture the regathered, the regathered Roman Empire. But the important thing to see isn't all of those kingdoms. It's what happens next. There is a rock cut without hands that crushes all of those kingdoms just to smithereens and then becomes a huge mountain that fills the earth. That kingdom, according to the interpretation Daniel gives, is the coming kingdom of Jesus Christ. Now, you'd think that Nebuchadnezzar, after seeing that, and ultimately his response is to bow down before Daniel and to worship Daniel's God, but that doesn't last long because when you get to the third chapter, Nebuchadnezzar sets up a 90-foot-tall image of gold. Did you get the connection? He was the head of gold. He's setting up an image of gold. Do you get that? In other words, he's worshiping himself. And he has all these musicians, and he said, when the music starts, everybody get down on your face before the image. And three of Daniel's friends say no. They go into the fiery furnace. God protects them, and, and Christ shows up in the midst of the burning fiery furnace. And Nebuchadnezzar, again, has a second, choice, a second chance to be able to dethrone self in his life, chooses not to do it. The fourth chapter of Daniel, what happens is that Nebuchadnezzar has another bad dream. Daniel interprets it to him and gives him a warning from God that if he does not humble himself before God, something very bad is going to happen to him, and it does. Nebuchadnezzar is looking over Babylon and boasting about all that he has done, and God, God makes him lose his mind. He becomes like an ox. He literally goes out to pasture, and he spends years there. And finally, Nebuchadnezzar 
humbles himself before God. And listen to what he says. His last recorded words, Now I praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, all whose works are truth and his ways justice, and those who walk in pride he's able to put down. God gave Nebuchadnezzar repeated opportunities to repent before him and acknowledge him as his rightful authority, and he did not. You ever see that commercial, What's in Your Wallet? A different twist on it today. Who's on your throne? Who's on your throne today? You know, every day, either you are on your throne or Christ is on the throne of your heart. In the palace of your soul, somebody is ruling today. I can just tell you that most of the, most of the self-induced challenges of my life come because of putting self on the throne. Most of the experiences of brokenness in our life comes because of that. My friend, I want to say to you, Jesus Christ came as a kingdom invasion wrapped in a little baby. It is the kingdom of Christ who's come to overthrow the kingdom of self in you. Jesus Christ is your rightful king. He is the Lamb of God and the Lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He is the one who is going to someday sit on the throne of David, and he's sitting on the right hand of the Father right now. He is greater than Solomon in his glory and authority. He is the rock cut without hands. He is the rider on the white horse. He is Jesus Christ, King of kings and Lord of lords. He was born in a manger so he could die on the cross, and he rose from the dead in great authority and power. He has ascended back to heaven. He's seated on the Father's right hand. Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. There's none like him, none to compare with him. There's none greater than him, none that has a greater authority than him, and no one more worthy to sit on the throne of your heart. Christmas is not about a cute little story about a baby. It's about an invasion, an invasion of the kingdom of Christ who wants to dethrone self in your life and say, listen, friend, blessing and joy and grace and love and guidance And deliverance comes when Jesus rules on the throne of your heart. There is no life better. There's no life like it. There's none more worthy than Jesus to sit on the throne of your heart. Honor him. Bow before him. Lord Jesus, you alone are worthy. You alone are king. It is not Caesar, it is not Nebuchadnezzar, it is not the kings of this world, it is not anyone greater than you. There is none that can compare with you, there's none greater than you. Lord, only you are worthy to sit on the throne of our hearts. You will come back to this earth and you will set up your earthly kingdom. You will rule for a thousand years on David's throne. And all the nations will be subjected to you. You will be that rock cut out without hands. You will crush them with a rod of iron. Like Joshua, we fall before you in worship and say, what do you say to your servant? Oh God, may we live constantly and continually dying to self so that we might live in Christ. 
Right now, I just want to say to you, friends, if you're living spiritually defeated, if your life is filled with conflict, you may want to just check out who's sitting on the throne of your heart today. What a glorious and wonderful thing it'd be this Christmas if you would just say, Lord, I'm tired of living the way I've been living. I'm weary from living under the tyranny and the bondage of self. I'm done blaming other people for the problems I'm creating because I'm putting self in the place of Christ. My friend, Jesus came to invade you and to set up his kingdom, to rule in your lives. Will you surrender to him? Will you submit to his authority? Will you find that peace only comes where Jesus rules? There are marriages right now that are torn up because self is shaking its fist between husband and wife. There's young people that are living lives of turmoil because they're rebelling against the authority of their parents. But ultimately, they're rebelling against your authority. People in bondage to temptation and sin But the real core issue is the willingness to dethrone self so that Christ can begin a work of transformation in them. The people here that are angry because they're gripping their rights rather than yielding them to you. People that are fearful because they're believing lies rather than believing your truth. Oh God, I pray. I pray that this Christmas there may be a revolution in many hearts where Christ is set up on the throne of their hearts as King of kings and Lord of lords.